driving home last night, uh, I asked my kids a question when we were in the car. I said, who are the most generous people you know? And I got some expected responses, some of the people that uh, I would expect them to answer that they know that are close to them, that are very generous with their time, with their resources, with their words, with their affirmation, and, and uh, they, they gave some of the names I would expect of some of the most generous people they know. And then my daughter said, Ron, one of the most generous people I know, and you don't know Ron, we didn't know Ron until last night, actually. Ron was our server at the Cracker Barrel last night. <laughs> and I don't know if you've been to the Cracker Barrel on a Saturday night, but apparently everybody around kind of has the hankering for chicken fried steak and hash brown casserole on Saturday night. Because the Cracker Barrel on a Saturday night is a pretty crowded place. But that's where we wanted to go, so we went there, knowing it was going to be a little bit crowded, and we waited for a table, uh, you know, a fairly good amount, about 20 minutes, which is about all you're going to wait probably for a table in a restaurant. We waited about 20 minutes for a table, and then we got seated, and it was very crowded, but we got seated, and Ron came and introduced himself and took our order, and, you know, it was very good and helpful. And then we waited some more for our food, and then we waited some more. And then we waited some more. And it got to the point where Wendy and I are looking at each other, realizing this is kind of a long time to wait for food. Like, we're patient, but, you know, you got kids. It's late at night. They're hungry. You're getting to that time where they're about to lose it. And Ron must have been sensing this, too. Because Ron comes by the table and starts giving us updates. Updates like the captain of an airplane would give before you're taking off. Like, you've been on a plane, and the captain comes on. He's like, this is the captain speaking. Uh, we've pulled back. There are four airplanes ahead of us ready to take off. So Ron comes by the table and starts giving us these updates. And he starts saying, there's three tickets ahead of you guys. And, and then there's two tickets ahead of you. And, and then he comes, and he says, look, you guys are up. You know, you're, you're, you're ready. We're, you're the next ticket. We're, we're making your food. And he said, I want you to know, well, you know, I, we've been busy. We're sorry for this. We've got the managers back there cooking now to try and help things out. And I guess he said that to, um, like, let me know they're doing everything they can to get out their food. What I thought was, you know, I don't really want the managers. Like, <laughs> like I think the managers should be managing and the cook should be cooking. But whatever, you know, that's what you got to do. And, and so finally, uh, Ron brings out, uh, brings out our food along with a very lengthy apology. And along with, you know, he puts the, puts the check on the table. And he said, look, I want you to know we took $10 off. And sorry for your wait. And, you know, and, and we just really appreciate you waiting. I thought, well, that was very nice. We didn't expect that. Didn't, you know, that was nice. So we started to eat our food, and, and then I found out one of the reasons why it took so long for our food to get there. Um, one of the people in the kitchen, I'm expecting it was a manager, thought I had ordered my French toast well done. So I think one of the reasons it took so long is because when I tried to cut through my French toast, couldn't quite get through. I mean, it wasn't just burnt. It was 
like need an electric knife to get through it burnt. So I kind of turned it over, and Wendy and I looked at each other, and we're like, oh, you know, what do you do? And then Ron comes back, is everything all right? And he just looks at my plate, and he's like, oh, no. And I didn't have to say anything, really. He's like, I'm sorry. He's like, look, anything you want on the menu, let us know what you want. We'll make it. So I'll go back there myself and make it for you. And so I, you know, I said, all right, just, you know, whatever. Bring me an egg sandwich or whatever, you know. Uh, and, and so he goes back and wait a little while longer, and he comes back with the, with the egg sandwich. And then at that point, he picks up the bill back off the table, crumples it up in his hand, throws it away, and he says, we're taking care of this. Don't worry about it, you know, and, and, and don't, we're very sorry for your wait. And that is how Ron became one of the most generous people <laughs> that my kids know. Ron was very generous. In a sense, what he was saying in that moment was, this was not worth your weight. Right? I mean, that's in a sense what he was saying. You know, you, you pay for this, he said, but what you got and what you just experienced, we're not even going to charge you for because that was not worth your weight. Waiting is something we spend a lot of our time doing, isn't it? I, we, we, we spend a lot of our time doing it, and some of us are probably better at it than others. I don't know if when people are describing you, if patience would be one of the first words that comes to their mind. Maybe it would be, but for a lot of people, I'm guessing it might not be. The person behind you at a traffic light, looking for the shortest line in the grocery store, waiting for your luggage at the airport, waiting for a table at a restaurant waiting in the office at the doctor's office only to be taking to another smaller office to wait there some more. Uh, and sometimes some of us are better at waiting than others, but we end up spending a lot of time waiting. But I want to talk to you this morning not about that kind of waiting, but about the waiting a lot of us experience when there are things in our lives that we are honestly waiting to be delivered from. Things in our lives, difficulties that we are waiting for something to happen with. For those of us who are Christians and followers of Christ, things in our lives, times in our lives, when we are just honestly waiting for God to intervene. We're waiting for God to show up. We're waiting for God to do something. How do you wait in times like that? And how do you know that it's going to be worth your wait? Because that's really the question that I think a lot of people ask. It's the question we have to ask when we're waiting on someone else. A lot of times we're waiting on people, and it's not in our control. You know, you're waiting for that food to come, but you can't really control it. You're waiting on God, and you can't really control it. So how do we wait in those times? And how do we know that it is worth our time waiting? Psalm chapter 40 are the words of David. And it's words about someone who is waiting. Waiting on the Lord. And I'm going to read the entire psalm for us, verse 1 through verse 17. But then we're going to focus in on the beginning and the end of the psalm particularly. I don't have the entire psalm on the screen for you. I want to read it for you, and I'm going to ask you to listen to the words of David uh, as 
uh, he writes this psalm, this song to the Lord. And here's what it says. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back to disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted. Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, my God, do not delay. I want to start at the end of this psalm with verse 17. Verse 17, David says, Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, my God, do not delay. So here's David in a situation that is desperate where he is waiting on God to help and deliver him. He says, I'm poor and I'm needy. Poor, I don't have the resources to deal with the situation that is before me right now. I don't have the means to take me out of this situation. I can't do it on my own. I don't have what it takes. Sometimes you might find yourself in that situation. Maybe it's a health situation and you would say to God, Lord, I'm poor in this situation. I don't have the means or the resources to change this diagnosis. And frankly, every doctor I go to doesn't either. Lord, I'm waiting on you. Maybe it's a financial situation where you would say, God, the bills are still coming in and I don't know where the money's going to come from. Lord, I am poor. I am needy. I don't have the resources to change this situation. Maybe it's a relationship situation. God, I've done everything I can. Lord, I have loved, I have fulfilled, I have, I have kid true to my vows, I have done everything I can, and yet the situation isn't changing. God, I am poor. I don't have the resources, and I'm waiting on you. 
Or God, uh, I have this desire in my heart to be married. I want, to, I want that person to share my life with. And I want that person to, 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 that you have set aside and to be in a relationship, a God-honoring, God-loving relationship. But everything I've tried hasn't worked. And I haven't found that person. And Lord, I'm waiting on you to bring that person to me. Poor. Needy. God, I need you to act in this situation. So that's David's situation. He's poor and needy. But then the rest of his situation is he's hopeful. Because he says, you are my help and my deliverer. Oh, my God, do not delay. Poor and needy, yet hopeful and trusting. Sometimes we get only focused on that first part, and we never get to that second part. We know we are poor and needy, and we stay there sometimes. You know, we live there. And we all know people like this, right? We all know people that when you come around them, you're going to hear about their poverty and their need. But even though they may be Christ followers, they may never get to the place where they say, God, you are my help and my deliverer. And yet that's where David lives. I'm poor and I'm needy. And yet, God, you are my help and my deliverer. And my question is, how can David say this? How can David recognize his poverty, recognize his lack, and at the same time say, God, you are my deliverer, my God, do not delay? Because I want to be able to say that. And if David can say that, I can say it, but I want to know why David says that. Let's go from the end of the psalm to the beginning of the psalm. Look at how the psalm starts. The end of the psalm, we were in the present tense. Let's go back to the beginning of the psalm. Notice all the past tense verbs. I waited patiently for the Lord. Now David's looking back. And he's saying, this is what happened to me in the past. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. Next verse. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I want to go back to verses 1 and 2 and look at this verse that uh, David says. Waited patiently for the Lord, turned to me, heard my cry, lifted me out of the slimy pit and out of the mud and the mire. So he's looking back and he's saying, how does David know that he can trust God? How does David know that it's worth the wait? The first way he knows is because he can look back on past experience and see what God has done. And so he looks back and he says, God, you heard my cry and you lifted me out of the slimy pit, the mud and the mire. What does that mean? What does that mean? I didn't know what that meant, but I was helped in a great way by uh, some of you have heard of Ray Vanderlyn and some of the curriculums he's put out. Puts out a lot of curriculums from the Holy Land where he films things on site. And one series he did called Walking with God in the Desert really gave a lot of insight to this particular verse. Because the mud and the mire and the slimy pit is strange. Take a look at this video. You might think that's a river somewhere in a rainforest or a jungle or someplace like that. It's actually the middle of the desert. See back there that waterfall? That's coming down. 
So what happens is in the desert, and especially the Judean desert, the Judean wilderness, what happens is it doesn't often rain in the desert, but it rains up in the mountains. And the mountains are granite, and they're covered in rock, and they are not capable really of absorbing any water. So what happens is the water finds channels to flow through and it finds these channels and then it carves these riverbeds or wadis through the ground and it carves these, these, uh, these uh, really canals through the ground that the river runs through. Now here's the thing, most of the time this is completely dry. Most of the time, you and I might be walking through there, and it just looks like, wow, how did these tall walls get here? Why is this, you know, why is this like, you wouldn't even guess that water would have been able to flow through there only if you're there during the rainy season. Now, if you're there during the rainy season, and you're walking through one of these wadis, you've got to be very careful. Because like I said, it's not raining in the desert. You don't think there's any danger. And you might think that the greatest danger, there it is when it's dry, you might think that the greatest danger in the desert is the heat or the scorpions or the lack of water, but actually, especially in the Judean wilderness, there are more people killed each year by the flash floods than there are by all those other things. And here's what David has in mind. See, what happens is as that water goes by, it leaves mud. It leaves sand. It leaves sediment. And if you were walking there during the non-rainy season, it just it hardens up like clay and you just walk over it. But if it's the rainy season and that water's gone by and it's quick and it's gone, what it's left is a muddy kind of riverbed and some pools of water. And here's what happens. Animals are always looking for water in the desert and they will go anywhere that they see water. And so if they see a little, here's how quick it comes, right? If they see a little pool of water left, they're going to go up and try and drink out of that little pool of water. But right next to that little pool of water is all this wet mud, sediment, clay, slimy stuff that's there. And they get close enough and they're drinking this little sheep, drinking out of the water. And what happens is they start sinking and sinking, and many a Bedouin shepherd has had to fi- has found sheep buried up to their belly in mud and soot, drinking out of this water. And guess what? If you're a sheep and all four of your legs and you're up to your belly in mud, you're not going anywhere. And if it's the rainy season. And it starts raining up in the mountains and that water starts, is going to come straight down out of those mountains and going to hit you. You've got no chance. You've got no hope. Unless shepherd comes by, picks up the sheep in the wadi and puts him on the rock. And David says, you picked me up out of the slimy mud and you placed me on the rock. And I think this is exactly what David has in mind when he is writing this psalm. 
that David is, has exactly in mind this picture of the Judean wilderness saying, I was stuck in the slimy mud. I was stuck in the mire. The, I had no hope because if I struggle, the more I struggle, you know what happens? The deeper I fall. So what can I do? The first couple words of this song, I waited patiently for the Lord. Because when you're stuck in the mud and the mire and the slime, that's all you can do. You're going to sit and wait. The only question is who you're waiting on. David said, I waited patiently for the war. And here's the truth. The reason in verse 17 he can say, oh Lord, you are my deliverer, is because back in verse 1 he can say, I waited patiently for the Lord and you heard my cry and you picked me up out of the slimy, miry mud and you set me on the rock so I can trust you now even though you haven't moved yet in the way I'm hoping you'll move. Even though things haven't changed the way I'm hoping they'll change. You've done it in the past, so I can count on the fact that you will do it again, that you are my hope and you are my deliverer. So how do you wait patiently in times when you are waiting on God? You do it one way by looking back to the other times when God has moved. And you look back and you say, God, you came through then, and I'm going to trust that you're going to come through again for me. Last week, um, Wendy and I were sitting down doing our devotions, and we, um, I don't know where you, you know, you do your morning or your evening devotions. Wendy and I have a place in our living room where we're kind of right across from each other, and, um, and so I was just writing in my journal and, and flipping through. Sometimes, uh, and I'm a big journaler, I hope you, you know, if you're not a journaler, I encourage you to journal, because someplace you got to kind of write down what God's doing. So, I, so sometimes I'll just flip over and look at, okay, what was I writing at this point in a different year? You know, and, and, and so there was an entry, entry not far from there from, from uh, 2012, and that sounds odd except the fact that I journal in a weird way um, so that an entry three years ago is near one from last week. Um, that's a different story. Anyways, I, uh, I looked at this entry and I said, hey, listen to this. And, and, I, and I read it to her, what I wrote back in, the, back in 2012. Um, and it was a time when we were going through a difficult time. We were going through a challenging time. We were looking for God's direction. We were looking for God's blessing. And there was just this one week where we just experienced these amazing blessings of God that we, didn't, that we didn't make come about, that we didn't expect, that just kind of in God's providence, he brought about one after another after another. One of them was a job for Wendy. She was in between jobs. We didn't know where that was going to come from. That came that week, just provision for things that we needed. That just came all in one week. And I said, remember when God did this? Why do we doubt? Why do we question, why do we worry that he's not in control and moving now just like he was then? Just do what David did. I hope you have a place in your life where you enumerate God's move and God's blessing in your life. 
where you have a place where you can remember so that when you find yourself in that place of difficulty, that place of waiting, that place of wondering, God, do you know my address? Do you know my number? Did you forget about me? That you're able to look back and say, God, you heard my cry. You picked me up out of the slimy pit and you put me on the rock. And if you did it then, I'm trusting you'll do it again because you haven't changed. Your love towards me hasn't changed. In fact, David says that later on in in this psalm. He talks about testifying about the Lord. And in verse 10, he says, I don't hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. That love is the steadfast love of God. David's saying, I know their steadfast love and I know your faithfulness. And if it was true then... I can trust that it's true now. And so look back. Trust that the Lord was at work then and is still at work in your life. I encourage you, the last thing I'll say on this one is I encourage you as parents, teach your children on how to remember the blessings of God. Teach your children how to recognize God moving in your family, in your life, so that they have that record, so that one day when they find themselves in that place of waiting, or that place of questioning, that they can remember, yeah, but God did this. Yeah, this might be going on now, but God did this. And this is the God I know, and this is the God I love. And if you're a Christian, You may say, well, I'm not sure what I can look back on when God moved. If you're a Christian, there is no greater thing you can look back on than the time that God saved your soul, picked you up out of the slimy mud, put you on the rock, and said, you're my child. Forgave you your sins, exchanged your filthy rags for his righteousness, gave you heaven for hell, and welcomed you into his family. If nothing else, you look back and you say, God, you took me out of the slimy pit in the miry clay, and you set me on the rock that is Christ. And if you did nothing else for me, you've done more than I deserve. And I can look back and say, God has moved, and so does David. Look back that way. Secondly, and lastly, is this. How do we know when something is worth it? Well, we know when we can look back and trust that it's happened before and God will do it again. But we also know that something is worth it, and maybe you're in this situation, when someone we trust tells us it's worth it. When someone we trust tells us it's worth it. There are some things that you might not wait for unless someone you trust tells you it's worth waiting for. The first time you went to the North End and someone took you to get a cannoli at Mike's Pastry and you looked at the line and you said, I am not waiting in this line for a cannoli. And they said, no, 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 trust me, trust me. It's it's worth it. We're going to wait. Trust me, it's worth it. And you said, fine. I'm not waiting because I believe that it is. I'm waiting because I trust you. I'm waiting because you're someone I trust. And if you've told me it's worth it, I'll wait. And you went and you had that cannoli. And you said, this was worth it. Then you learned about modern pastry up the street. And you found out, you know what? We could have just gone there. My personal preference. Anyway. Anyway. 
But there are times when you're going to wait because somebody you trust told you it's worth the wait. There are times you're going to wait because somebody you trust told you it's worth the wait. David knows this, so he's proclaiming the righteousness of God. He's saying, God, I did not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. In other words, he's saying, I will speak about what you have done. And so there's times where I might say, well, David trusted you, and I trust the word of God, and I trust David, and I'm going to trust you because of that. There are times when there's people in scripture that I look at, and I said, you came through for them, and I'm going to trust that you're going to come through for me. There's also times where people in this room, or people in your life, Christians that have been following the Lord, and this is where those of you, I'll say this carefully, that are more seasoned in the faith, walking with the Lord a longer time than others. Please, the church needs you. Church needs your stories. Church needs to hear when God has come through for you because it encourages our faith. Because it encourages someone's faith when they say, if God came through for you like that, then I can trust that he'll come through for me like that. Sometimes it's just trusting someone else who says, God will do it. Wait. Wait. It's worth the wait. God will do it. Hearing those stories are encouraging to us. I heard one the other night. I was happy to be sitting down with a, with a, with a man in our church and... Um, he was sharing the testimony of his life and his family's life, and I hadn't really heard the full story before. And I said, man, this is a story the church needs to hear because I'm encouraged by this because you waited, your family waited, and God came through, and that's encouraging. And there's people that need to hear that. And sometimes it's gonna be just listening to the story someone else that trusted the Lord. And he came through. And that's how I know it's worth it. I'll trust you. I'll trust you that waiting for Mike's pastry is going to be worth it. I'll trust you if you tell me that line at Six Flags, which is forever, is worth it for that ride. I'll trust you. Because you said it's worth it and I trust you. And when it comes to the Lord, there are times when you're going to say, I don't know. I, I got to make something happen here. And someone will come along and say, I waited. And here's what God did. And he can do it for you too. So how do you know? How do you wait? How do you know it's going to be worth it? Well, one way is when you look back and you see that God came through in the past. Because when you know that God came through in the past, doesn't it become easier to believe and know he's going to come through again? I mean, when you look back, you know it becomes easier. It's like this. Uh, when I go, uh, when I, I fly to uh, Lubbock, Texas a lot. That's where Wendy's family is, and we fly down to Lubbock, Texas a lot. And to fly to Lubbock, there's no direct flight from, Lubbock, uh, from Boston to Lubbock. Shocking, I know. No direct flight from Boston to Lubbock. You got to go to Dallas and then go to Lubbock. So we go to Dallas every time, and then we go to Lubbock. First, uh, within the first few times of going, go to Dallas, get to Lubbock, Go to get my luggage, no luggage. And I never have lost my luggage before. Other the airlines have never have lost my luggage before. So this, I mean, this is like a new experience for me the first time it happened. 
And so I am going to the counter, and I am, like, freaking out. Like, I am never going to see my luggage. Like, where is my bag? It went to Hawaii. My bag's having a better vacation than I am. What? And what are you going to do about it? And how are you going to find it? And here's my cell phone, and here's our phone of the house we're staying at, and here's the address. And and then I'm going to call back every hour and check on the bag to see if you've gotten it. And they're like, well, it's probably still in Dallas. We'll get on the next plane. We'll bring it to you. And I'm like, well, I want to know. You know, we don't have any clothes. We're here. And, you know, whatever. And, yeah, well, you know what happens. Some later that night, some guy pulls up to the front door and knocks on the door. Here's your bag. And uh, the next time I flew down to Lubbock, get to the luggage corral, my luggage isn't there again. And it's not unusual. It just happens. There's so many flights going from Dallas to Lubbock that sometimes they'll just, you know, it's quick. We have less than an hour changeover. They throw it on the next plane. So the next time, go, I go to the luggage. How did that happen then? Next time, I just go to the desk, say, hey, didn't get my bag. Probably on the next plane. Here's the place we're staying. Thanks. Have a good day. Because I knew in the past how it was handled. So it became easier now to trust that it's going to be handled the same way this time. And sometimes that's the way with God. That when you can look back and you say, God, you handled that. God, you came through there. So I'm going to trust that you're going to come through right here, right now, even though I'm just waiting. Even though it hasn't happened yet and I'm just waiting. I'm going to trust that you will deliver. Let me, um, let me close with this story I heard this week. Uh, maybe you've heard it before. It happened a while ago. I hadn't heard it before. Uh, it was about uh, a pastor. I want to get his name right. The pastor's name, Slim Cornett. Slim Cornett. Pastored out in Mississippi. I think if you've got a name named Slim, you've got to be pastoring in Mississippi. I don't know. Slim Cornett. Pastored out in Mississippi. And uh, one day, one of his parishioners who worked at the local airport wanted to take uh, his pastor, Pastor Slim, out and show him his job. Um, so he took him out there late at night because no one's around. The airport's quiet. He said, Pastor, you know, come on late at night. I'll take you around. I'll show you the airport, show you my job, show you what I do. Small little, you know, little airport. And, and, uh, and so he's late at night. The pa- he's showing the pastor around the airport. He gets to the part where he is showing him what happens if it's an emergency and there's a plane that needs to make an emergency landing at night. And he says, what happens is you throw this switch and it turns on these like spiraling lights so they know where the airport is. And then you throw this other switch and it turns on a green light that lets them know that they're clear to land because this is all in place because you've got maybe no communication with the airplane and so you've got to have a way to communicate for they know. So they throw the lights on when they know, they throw this green light on so they know the land. And then he said, when I throw this lever and he throws the lever, all the lights on the runway go on and it just lights up. And just when he did that, a small little plane comes taxis down and lands at the airport. And they just look at each other. They go, what is going on? There was no plane that was expected to come in. This is 1971. 1971, this happened. The little plane comes in. They shut the lights off and they run out to the, to the, uh, to the landing strip along with the guy that was working the uh, air traffic control uh, that night who's yelling, I didn't clear any plane to land. 
out from the plane comes a man named Franklin Graham and a pilot. Uh, Franklin Graham in 1971 was a young guy. He was, he was actually uh, traveling uh, back and forth, uh, going back to school, and he was also in the process of earning his pilot's license on these small planes. And uh, out walks Franklin Graham. Now, Franklin Graham's side of the story is this. They took off from Florida that day, and uh, there was a storm in Alabama. And so Alabama, they were going to Texas, but they rooted them north. And they said, why don't you go north, get out of the storm, and then come back down. So they, go, they, they headed north, but in the midst of that, they had plane trouble, lost all the electrical power to the plane. Had no electrical power whatsoever. They couldn't communicate. They're flying dark. It's, they're flying at night. They had nothing. And so they're flying around doing a, a triangle, emergency triangle pattern to try and find something and someplace to land. And then they see these lights go on at the airport. And then they see the green light go on. And they go down and they have to manually let down the wheels because they have no electrical power. Then they see the runway lights click on so they know that someone has spotted them and they are clear to land. Lands the plane on the airstrip and immediately the runway lights go out. And Franklin Graham and the pilot look at each other like, well, they could have at least left them on until we taxied, (laughs) you know, to get our plane in. And then finally they shared stories and realized that it had to be God. That these guys, this guy, this pastor touring the airport had no idea that up there there was someone waiting for a sign, waiting for God to act, waiting for God to come through when he throws the switch for the plane to land. And maybe that's you. Maybe you feel like you're circling around. And you're flying around and you're just waiting. And you're just waiting. But I want to let you know this morning, and I think what Psalm 40 tells us, is that wait on the Lord because it's worth the wait. The Lord is the one who's able to deliver you. The Lord is the one who's able to make a change in your situation. Wait on God. He's the one who's able to come through from you. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His ways are higher than your ways. His resources are way beyond what yours are. Wait on God. Wait on God. Because Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So if it's not good yet, it means God's not done yet. Because all things work together for good. So if it's not good, God's not done. Continue to wait on God. Trust him that he will deliver you. Would you pray with me? As we pray, I recognize there are some in this room that you're waiting for God to move. And I want to pray for you today. I want to pray that God will give you the faithfulness and the courage to wait to not force or do something that would be contrary to what God would want, but to wait and trust him for your deliverance. But I also recognize as we come to this time of prayer that there's some in this room who may never have put their trust in Christ. And I just want to say in light of this message, the truth is we're all in a waiting room. 
this, this earth, this planet we're revolving around, in some ways, it's just one big waiting room. You can do a lot of things in a waiting room to pass time, make it feel shorter, make it feel more enjoyable. You can read a book, read a magazine, play on your phone, watch TV. You can do all kinds of things to make it feel shorter, make all kinds of things to pass time, but you're still in a waiting room. And it's true here too. Life on this earth is short. Pastor Brian preached that message here a few weeks ago. It's not long. But what about life after this place? Who are you trusting for that? Who are you believing and putting trust in for that? I believe you can trust the Lord. I believe what he says, that if you will put your trust in me and make me Lord of your life and trust me to save you, that you can trust him. You can put your faith in him, become a follower of him, and that he will lead you all the days of your life. And if you've never done that, I encourage you to consider this morning who you're putting your trust in and how do you know it's gonna be worth it? Because what I believe is that if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it'll be worth it. You will never regret that decision. Not in the long run. You will not. Not in the short run because his presence will be with you. Lord, we come before you today. And Lord, for those in this room that may today be considering that question of eternity and who they're going to trust with it, I pray, God, that you would speak to their heart and call them to yourself. And if that's you today, I ask that you would use your words. If you're ready, that you would let God know that you want to follow him, that you want to make him Lord of your life. That sometime in this waiting room right here, that you want to become a follower of God and trust him with your circumstances and with your eternity. You can do that in your own words right where you're at. And I'd love to hear about that decision or one of our pastors would love to help you on your walk and on your journey on that decision. Father, I pray also for those who are here and I know there are many who are waiting on you to deliver them. Lord, I pray for your church. God, I ask that you would give us the strength and the courage and the faith to wait hopefully to wait full of hope in you, to wait trusting in you, to wait like David waited. We are poor and we are needy, but we have a God who thinks of us and we have a God who we trust to deliver us. And so, Lord, I ask for that man or that woman who's in here today, who's come in here discouraged, that you would encourage them, remind them that it's worth the wait, that you are worth the wait. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would remind us, God, bring back to our spiritual memories those times where we may have forgotten or we may have completely missed where you were at work in our lives, where your grace saved us, where your grace sustained us. You protected us and we didn't even know we were in danger. You loved us. You were faithful to us when we didn't even know who you were. And yet you were there watching over us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of those times when you have been at work so we can trust you in the waiting, Lord. 
And God, when we come through it, may we like David, may we like David say, I will not conceal what the Lord has done. I will not keep it to myself what God has done. I will proclaim the steadfast faithfulness of my God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.